Welcome to What Crime Is It? I'm Cassidy, and this is part two of the Johnny Gosh abduction from 1982. If you haven't seen or heard part one, I'm going to put a link either in the description up here or in the description below, depending on whether or not you're listening to the podcast or watching the YouTube channel. Uh, please go ahead and do that. We're not going to cover uh, much of that episode, and there are a lot of things in there that maybe you might have missed. Uh, let's begin. So initially, police believed that Johnny was a runaway, and we covered in episode one that the chief uh, of police, Orville Cooney, was not only completely incompetent, but seemed to sort of go out of his way to, I would say, sabotage the efforts. Noreen tells a story about being followed by a police car just days after the abduction. I pulled in to a parking lot, and the sheriff's car pulled in too. And I thought, good Lord, what now? Well, this man got out of the car, and he came over to me, and he said, ma'am, I just want you to know that I'm the sheriff of Dallas County. That's the county adjacent to ours. And he said, right after your boy was kidnapped, we sent a whole group of men to the police department to help, as did other county sheriffs in all the counties around here. We all sent men to help in the searches. And your police chief told our men to go home that he did not want the help. So once Chief Cooney was fired for corruption and theft and misuse of his power, they changed their statement, the police. They suggested that Johnny was kidnapped, um, but they were unable to establish a viable motive. A few months later, in September 1982, Noreen said that her son was spotted in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when a boy approached a woman screaming, asking for help, saying he had been kidnapped and that his name was Johnny Gosh. He was then dragged off by two men. The woman reported it to police, but at the time it was dismissed as some bratty boy who was mad at his parents and attempting to embarrass them. The woman always insisted, though, that it was Johnny, and especially after watching many reports on, on TV, he was on America's Most Wanted, uh, she has always said that it was him. And just as an aside, a letter arrived in 1988 that was purportedly written by Johnny, and it described this very incident. And since it was never entered into public record, they do believe that it was him, and this has now been uh, confirmed as a real sighting. So as a matter of necessity, Noreen and John had begun learning more about child abduction and spoke publicly about the way that these pedophile rings worked. She cited organizations like NAMBLA and their ties to the sex trafficking trade. She began seeking the connections between child trafficking and wealthy, powerful, connected men. It was around this time that she complained of being watched and started receiving threats, even claiming that family members were being threatened as well, no doubt as a result of calling attention to these long-standing organizations and the influential men involved who wanted to remain in the shadows. A national campaign had been launched from their living room. At a time before the internet and, like today, the instant access to millions of viewers just sitting in your hand, you know, Noreen had to be pretty innovative. And some people might even say that she was a bit brash and outlandish if the situation called for it. Both she and John appeared on local news, in countless publications, and eventually even onto national television shows. The case, as I said earlier, was covered on America's Most Wanted, which at the time was massive and was really responsible for 
recovering a lot of abducted children and also solving a lot of crimes. So it was an amazing opportunity. And she became very close with John Walsh, who also had his child abducted. And the two of them would go on to do a lot of really great work together. She was referred to by a grieving mother by some and completely off her rocker by others. But really, she had no time for such criticism. You know, if she was being questioned about her agenda or the veracity of her claims, it was clear that the media game was one that she was beginning to understand and work to her advantage. I would say not without consequence, though, right? I mean, her critics were definitely becoming more than just critics. Noreen tells a story of leaving her porch light on. It was in case Johnny ever did come home, you know, a symbol of their house always being open and ready to receive him. One night, they noticed that the light was dark. So John Sr. went outside to change the bulb, but discovered that the bulb had been removed. Noreen also believed that her phone was being tapped, and at night, they would hear someone in their backyard throwing things at their house. Of course, every time they would go out there, there'd be nobody there. And again, I don't know how supported she was being by police either. Prank calls came in for months, all traced to phone booths. Noreen wouldn't stop, though. Nothing could scare her away from finding the truth of what happened to her son. She even went as far as to contact somebody from the mob to find out if he knew anything, to see if he had any connections to what happened to Johnny. So the man told her that while he was involved in illegal activities, his organization was in no way involved in doing any harm to children. And if he heard anything, he would find out and not only handle it, but also let her know. Noreen has recounted this story, saying that Cosa Nostra is known to be a family-oriented organization, and she believed that they wouldn't have been involved in any crimes against children. But she did wonder if he might have access to information, you know, to that underworld that she herself wouldn't be privy to. So I'm not sure if it was the same man, but from what I can gather, it was somehow to do with this relationship that later the police received a call from someone in the Iowa mob warning about a hit that was being planned on Noreen. It had been contracted against her life because she was becoming too much trouble. So his message was they would be getting a call about a possible lead. It would be about her son, that they would have information. It would require her to fly and to meet with someone in Tulsa. And he said, whatever you do, don't leave town. I had, um, on a one afternoon, a call from the police department which was rare because they didn't call and talk to me very often. The lieutenant said to me that they had received a phone call from a man who identified himself as one of some families that lived in Des Moines, Mafia. And this man said there's been a contract put out on Noreen. They're going to try to kill her. And they're going to try to lure her out, her out of town. The word is that she's causing too many waves for these people, and they're going to get rid of her. Well, the police uh, lieutenant said, and this was long after Orville Cooney had lost his job. He was no longer in control. It was the new chief. This lieutenant said, I'm going to call the FBI up on this. The next morning at 5 a.m., I got a phone call. And it was a man that I didn't know saying that he wanted me to go to the airport in the afternoon that there'd be a ticket waiting for me that would take me into Kansas City. 
Kansas City, I would board an Eastern airliner and go into Oklahoma. There at the airport, I would land, rent a car, and go to a certain hotel and check in under my own name and wait. And then the man hung up. So I immediately called the police lieutenant who helped that to me, told him what happened. He said, we'll be over to your house in a half hour. They all showed up at my house. My husband was out of town. And they proceeded to get into an argument at my kitchen table. The FBI wanted to send me on this trip. The lieutenant said, don't you understand? Someone else called us. I mean, they identified the man. They gave the name. He told us ahead of time that there was a contact on her that they were going to try to lure her out of the country, out of the city. He said, we cannot send her. We've got to send a policewoman. Well, the FBI said, well, we've got to go back to the office and call Washington. We can't make a decision on this without them. A couple of hours later, they all came back. The FBI said, if we send an FBI agent with you, to pose as your husband, would you consider going? That means the man would fly with you, share the room with you, everything. The police lieutenant was sitting there, and he pounded the table, and he says, she will never get back here. They will either take her out in Kansas City because from the shuttle to the airline, she'll have to cross the tarmac. They'll either take her out in Kansas City or it'll happen in Oklahoma. He said, It'll have to be a policewoman or someone that we can make look like her. She's not going. So I stayed home, again, ordered not to leave my house, make it look like I wasn't there. They sent a policewoman. She went to the hotel, just like instructed, and a man called her and wanted her to meet him in a coffee shop. The man surfaced. They were then going to... Uh, take a drive out into a remote area, and that's where this evidence was supposed to be. They got the guy, and he went to the penitentiary for 10 years. It was an actual contract. So there are a few instances where opportunists came forward and extorted them, really, for money. This is from UPI.com. Two FBI agents posing as the parents of missing paperboy Johnny Gosh Saturday arrested a man who wanted cash in exchange for information on the youth's whereabouts, authorities said. David James Schultz, 36, of Syracuse, New York, was arrested in a Tulsa cafeteria by a police officer, and the two agents posing as John and Noreen Gosh said Special Agent James Ahern in Omaha, Nebraska. Schultz told the undercover officers he had information regarding the location of a missing youth in Mexico and would sell the information. I mean, this is just like... Sell the information for $2,500. Could you imagine having information about an abducted child and asking for money? So apparently he had no such information about the boy, and it turned out he was wanted for a parole violation in New York. He was charged with attempted extortion and wire fraud and was convicted of federal crimes and sent to a Kansas prison. Uh, Another extortion attempt was made in 1985 and resulted in the arrest, conviction, and jailing of Robert Herman Meyer II, of Saginaw, Michigan, who also claimed he saw Johnny Gosh in Mexico. He obtained $11,000 from the Goshes in some sort of private meeting. 
So obviously they had to get help. And over the years, several private investigators assisted the Goshes with the search. Jim Rothstein, a retired New York City police detective, and Ted Gunderson, a retired chief of the Los Angeles FBI branch, they stepped in to help. In 1984, Gosh's photograph appeared alongside that of Juanita Rafaela Estevez on milk cartons across America. They were the second and third abducted children to have their faces circulated to every house in the country. The first was Etan Pates. He was a young boy who was abducted in New York in the village. Uh, awful story, and it actually has been solved recently, in the last, I think, five years even. Also, uh, in 1984, Noreen founded the Johnny Gosh Foundation. That brings us up to 1984. I wrote legislation for the state of Iowa. Legislation that forces the police department to begin an active investigation for a missing child immediately. It was called the Johnny Gosh Bill. It passed into law, was signed in by the governor July 1st of 1984. She visited schools and spoke at seminars about pedophilia. She lobbied for the Johnny Gosh bill, mandating immediate response by police upon receiving reports of child abductions. The bill became law in 1984 and led to other states passing similar legislation. She testified before Congress about the organized crime of pedophile rings, resulting in a $10 million allocation to the establishment of the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Noreen was even invited to the White House by President Reagan for the dedication ceremony. So not long after this law was changed, Noreen received a phone call from a man claiming to have information on another kidnapping, which would take place in Des Moines. It would be eerily similar to Johnny's abduction. I had gotten a call from a man who was an informant, claimed he was anyway, and said that he had information that there was going to be another kidnapping in Des Moines, Iowa. That it would be the second weekend in August, 1984, that it would be another paper boy, and that it would be on the south side of Des Moines. I made a tape recording of that call, of that call, and my discussion with him, and I took it to the Des Moines Police Department because that would be their jurisdiction. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to talk to me. So then I went to the TV station. And I played it for them, for the, the news directors. I said, at least you need to know about this. I then went to one of the reporters who was in charge of all those stories on Johnny's case. His name was Frank Santiago. He still remembers it to this day. Well, August came, and 2020 was in town doing Johnny's story. We were at our home filming. I spoke to the producer. And I told her about this call I had gotten and that this man had claimed that there was going to be another kidnapping. And I said, I just have a gut feeling that he's on the level. I said, I can't explain it, but nobody wants to listen. And she did not go back to New York yeah. after the interviews. The following morning, my phone rang early, and it was a reporter at our ABC affiliate. He said, Mrs. Gosh, Mrs. Gosh, there's been another kidnapping, just like you said there would be. On the Sunday, you said it would be. It's a paper boy. It's on the south side of Des Moines, and they're calling it a kidnapping, and they're bringing in 22 FBI agents from Quantico to handle the case. They went charging into the Des Moines Police Department with microphones in their hands, 
cameras rolling, and put the microphone in the police chief's face and said, are you going to do a canine search for this boy? They didn't for Johnny Gosh. Are you going to do an aerial search by plane or helicopter? They didn't for Johnny Gosh. Are you going to bring in the FBI? They wouldn't for Johnny Gosh. This informant has since been named by Noreen as a man called Sam Soda an investigator and self-proclaimed expert on sex slavery and crimes against children. He comes up a lot throughout this case, and I'll go into more detail about him in episode three. So since this podcast is focused on the Johnny Gosh abduction, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the Eugene Martin case, but he does deserve some recognition for reasons to do with the parallels that exist within the two kidnappings and also for the fact that he, like Johnny, is still missing. So this is directly from iowacoldcases.com. On Sunday morning, August 12, 1984, 13-year-old Eugene Martin left his home at approximately 5 a.m. to deliver the Des Moines Register newspaper in the Des Moines area. He wore blue jeans, a red shirt, and a gray pullover. Eugene normally delivered the papers with his older stepbrother, but on this day went alone, which I think is so interesting, right? Because now that's being disputed by the goshes, too, that that part of that story. And I wonder if over time that information got mixed somehow, although I I have heard Noreen say that Johnny always went with somebody and this time he went alone. And then, of course, John Sr. has disputed that, saying that sometimes Johnny would go alone and sometimes he would go with a parent. But it's, it's a very interesting sort of parallel here. So the Iowa State Fair was in town, and Eugene, who in his free time enjoyed football, fishing, skating, video games, and TV, wanted to make some extra money. Witnesses say they saw Martin talking to a clean-cut white male in his 30s sometime between 5 and 5.45 a.m. at Southwest 12th Street and Highview Drive. Some stated that the two appeared to be engaged in a friendly, father-son sort of conversation, Others recalled seeing the teen folding papers and talking to the man sometime between 5.45 and 6.05 a.m. Between 6.10 and 6.15 a.m., Eugene's bag was found on the ground outside of Des Moines with 10 folded papers still inside. When customers called to report not receiving their morning newspapers, the manager went out, found the bag, and delivered the papers. Such a similar story, right? So interesting. At approximately 8.40 a.m., the search for Eugene began. He has not been seen since. So that's the second Paperboy. And there is some more information about Paperboys. In 1986, uh, a man attempted to abduct 15-year-old Des Moines Paperboy named Jim Pollock, but he actually managed to escape. He said that the man was wearing camouflage, Uh, and that he chased him, and he grabbed him, and I guess Jim kicked him in the shins and was able to run away. He didn't describe the man as looking like the character uh, that everybody is sort of, you know, referring to as this man with the thin mustache, but it doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't part of the same ring or group of people. But the FBI claimed that there were no connections between the cases, despite the fact that The abductions happened to paper boys who were the same age on Sundays while they were delivering for the Des Moines Register. And two of the boys, at least, Eugene and Johnny, had been seen talking to a man in a car. I just can't believe that they didn't see a connection there. I just find that to be, literally, my my Yorkshire Terrier would have made a connection, just saying. 
1985, three years after Johnny's disappearance, uh, a woman contacted the Gosh family to report that she had received a dollar bill in Sioux City, Iowa, with a handwritten message from Johnny. The dollar bill said, I am alive, and it was signed Johnny Gosh. I mean, that could have been anybody, right? Of course, it could have been anybody. We know that. And she went on the news, and, and she showed the dollar bill. And there are lots of criticisms about Noreen for making huge news stories about things that some people thought were really circumstantial and very difficult to believe. And I understand, right? I understand where people are coming from. You don't want to send the police going on a wild goose chase. You don't want to take the attention away from viable leads. But you also have to remember, she's trying to just keep Johnny's name in the press. And every time she goes on television and every time something like this happens, people start discussing the case again. And she begins to put pressure a little bit, not only on police, but the press and also possibly the people who took him. So this brings us to Yellow Bag. A while back, I was going to start doing this case and I knew that it was going to take me a long time. And so I started some research and I started digging. I had obviously seen the documentary that was, um, I believe, originally on HBO. And it was amazing, but of course I knew there was going to be lots more. And I found this website that I cited before, which is iowacoldcases.com. And it's really amazing. They have so much information about, you know, the Eugene Martin case and also the Johnny Gosh case. But what was even more fascinating is that there were messages. There's a really active message board on the Johnny Gosh page. And it's so long and there's so much, but a man appears and his name, he calls himself Yellow Bag. And Yellow Bag is from the paper boys of the Des Moines Register during that time, used to carry a yellow bag. I'm going to post a link below so that you can read the full exchange. It's so much that it would be crazy for me to sit here and try to read it all. There are questions, there are people chiming in, there are naysayers, there are curious people, um... These are excerpts from what he wrote. I didn't edit anything. I'm reading what he wrote. So some of it may seem long. It's not for me to cut words out, you know, even in the interest of time. Yellowbag claims that he was a paper carrier at the same exact time that Johnny Gosh was. That he was a little older than Johnny and he was in a different district, but they worked for the same paper. And he, what he has to say is, is explosive if true. Here's yellow bag statement. It was snowing that morning, so I am guessing it was February or March of 1982, before Johnny was kidnapped. A man in a Ford Fairmont stopped, watched me for a while, and then asked for directions. He then suggested I get in his car since it was cold and snowing outside. I started to feel uncomfortable as he insisted I get into his car. I finally asked, where do you want directions to? He answered, Ankeny. As I started to give directions, the man stopped me and said, I don't really need directions. I just want to mess around with you. Back in the 80s, mess around meant have sex. I said no and started running away. I looked to see if I could get the license number on the Fairmont, but the plate was completely covered with snow. That September, when I heard Johnny was kidnapped and the police were looking for a man in a Ford Fairmont, I suspected it was the same person. I called the West Des Moines police and they told me an officer would come to my house to speak with me. No one ever showed up. I could have identified the man by photo or provided a good description to a sketch artist. 
He was wearing a very distinctive blue and orange jacket, leading me to think he was a local paramedic or firefighter. Anyway, my family had moved around that time and Wilbur Milhouse became my new district manager for the register. Milhouse had just transferred from West Des Moines to the east side of Des Moines. He admitted he knew Johnny and he talked about him a lot. I thought Milhouse was a cool guy because he bought us Paperboy's beer and gave us money. One day, the register had a party for its carriers at the Old Skate East. It was there that I saw Milhouse with the guy who tried to get me into his car. I later discovered Milhouse was a pedophile. In the summer of 1983, I started getting creeped out by Milhouse. He was calling me every night, trying to talk me into coming to his home. When I refused, I heard an anger and an evil in his voice I had never heard before. Also, as I posted before, three teen boys who were visiting a girl across the street saw Milhouse dropping me off at my house after buying me beer. The boys lived in West Des Moines and had delivered papers there. When Milhouse was gone, the boys warned me that Milhouse was a, this is what's written here, okay? I just, I'm stopping for a second. I'm just saying this is what's written here. I don't love this word, but this is what he says, okay? This is, I'm just reading it. Uh, when Milhouse was gone, the boys warned me that Milhouse was a faggot and that I ought to stay away from him. Isn't it amazing when you say words that you hate saying? It's like you literally feel them inside. It's crazy. Ugh. I stopped answering my uh, teen line phone and I told my mother to tell Milhouse that I was not home every time Milhouse called our home phone. So he was calling boys, right? And there is that original account that Johnny was getting calls or that the house phone was getting calls in the middle of the night. And when his father would pick up, he'd hang up. He might've been waiting for Johnny to pick up. I mean, I just think it's crazy. And of course, now John Sr. says that Milhouse or that no calls ever came in, but that story was being told for so long. And if that's true, there is evidence here that this man was calling boys' houses at night constantly. Wilbur Milhouse and Frank Sikora, two former Des Moines Register employees, were both convicted of sexually abusing teen boys in the 1980s. This is still Yellow Bag's statement. Milhouse told me several times that he knew who took Johnny and why. Last fall, I found a photo of the man who approached me in a Ford Fairmont in 1982. And guessed what? He was a Des Moines Register employee. Milhouse lived in the area people used to call the Bottoms. On multiple occasions, Milhouse tried to convince me to drive to his house late at night without telling my parents. Milhouse called me one night saying there was a cute female carrier who was looking for a teen boy to have sex with. Milhouse another time said they had a rich gay friend who would pay $100 just to look, quote unquote. There were other times Milhouse said he had work for me to do there. His excuse for wanting me to come late at night is that he did not want to wake his elderly mother. I'm glad I had sense enough to stay away from Milhouse's home, but I wonder how many boys did go there. If you Google map Milhouse's old address, there is a wooded area and a pond directly behind his old house. Milhouse was arrested for trying to sexually entice a teen boy in 1975. He spent 30 days in jail for that, but the Des Moines Register rehired him three years later to work with children. They had to have known about Milhouse's arrest because that arrest was printed in the register in 1975. Shortly after Johnny turned up missing, Milhouse said some strange things to me that convinced me he knew who took Johnny and why. 
Twice I saw Milhouse become visibly angry when talking about Johnny Gosh. Both times, Milhouse said Johnny was kidnapped because he, quote, couldn't keep his mouth shut. Maybe Milhouse was calling Johnny, and Johnny threatened to tell on him. With a second offense, Milhouse would have known that he faced prison, getting his butt kicked again by fellow inmates, and the loss of his dream job, working with and victimizing boys. Since I saw the man later with Wilbur Milhouse and a Des Moines Register circulation manager, I wonder now if any Register employees had jobs that required the wearing of blue and orange reflective vests. One other thing that puzzles me. The man had dark hair, brown eyes, a mustache, and an average build, just like the sketch associated with that abduction of Johnny. However, the man who tried to get me into his Ford Fairmont was only about 25 to 30 years old. I don't remember thinking the man was Hispanic, just a Caucasian guy with dark hair and a very angry countenance. I distinctly recall that the man had an accent, not a foreign accent, but I got the impression he was not originally from Iowa, maybe New York, New Jersey, Boston, or somewhere else on the East Coast. So that's all I've taken from that page. But again, there's so much there. So if you want to go and read more and see what other people are saying and, and you know, please feel free. Like I said, I will put the link in the description below. A couple of things there though, right? So the accent and New York accent, you know, in, in episode one, we, we cover that, that this is what the boy sort of said that he had a slurred speech. And then another guy said he sort of had an East Coast accent. And the other thing that I found interesting is him saying that he didn't really think he was a Hispanic and that he also didn't really think that he was older, right? He thought he was like maybe 25 or 30. It doesn't surprise me that young Caucasian boys from Iowa at that age, you know, really young, right? 12, 13 years old would A, not be able to guess the age of somebody. Anybody over the age of 20 to them is old, right? Like, or 25. Like, everybody's old, especially because people age differently. So you could easily get a guy who's 25 or 30, and if you're up close to him and you're looking at him, you might know that, but to somebody else, he might look 40 or 45. Um, the other thing is, it doesn't also doesn't surprise me that young boys in a affluent, you know, at that time, white neighborhood wouldn't have sort of the exact description of what a Hispanic man did or didn't look like, right? You know, all of the boys that have been abducted and all of the boys that have come forward, they all kind of look the same. And I don't think there were a ton of Hispanic boys running around Des Moines, Iowa, I don't know if they had a lot of exposure. You know, it wouldn't surprise me that a man with dark hair and a thin mustache would be described as possibly Hispanic by young boys like that. So I also have been recently told by um, a friend that Yellowbag was interviewed on a podcast called Faded Out, and she said it was episode 13. I do believe that he reiterates pretty much what he said here, but he's a real guy. And it seems that, you know, this information has been verified. I will make sure to add a link to that as well in case you haven't heard it. Here we are. All of this information was available in 1982. It all ties together. You would think that the police and the FBI would have tied it all together. And of course, things were different in 1982. You know, did the register intentionally put these boys in harm's way? I mean, that's hard to imagine, right? It's hard to imagine that it was an or orchestrated plot by everybody on the payroll. 
you know, did some in positions of power have nefarious intentions and somehow they managed to keep, you know, this crew of pedophiles hidden from others who were, say, less worldly? I mean, you know, right, there wasn't a ton of education on the subject back then. And I guess someone at the Des Moines Register thought it was okay to hire someone back who had left their original position to serve time for sexually abusing minors and thought, hey, let's put him in charge of the kids. You know, all I'm saying is this. Yes, times change, but common sense doesn't. And, you know, here's the other crazy thing. This is not the only theory in this case. It's not even the most shocking. Next time on What Crime Is It?